Today on the Patrick E. McLean Podcast, Competence versus Horrible Leadership. Can a book read us better than we read it? I think we live in a time of horrible leadership. I mean, just across the board. Everybody in power seems to be frighteningly old, and since the last 40 years or so have been so easy, none of the people in charge of anything seem to have dealt with the real crisis, or had to build anything. They can tear down, they can criticize, they can pass the buck and grift their way through, with seemingly no awareness that the stakes might be real and far more important than any one person's own advantage. Many of the characters in How to Succeed in Evil are predicated on this kind of idea. People have great potential and power, but they are stupid about using it, even stupid about doing the wrong things with it. As I return to How to Succeed in Evil, I consciously try to turn away from current events. These stories are meant to be an escape and an enjoyment rather than any ill-advised attempt to reform anything about the world. Because entertainment is a noble thing in its own right. I mean, everybody needs a break. But here we are. And perhaps it is such an unavoidable theme in this moment that I can't even read ancient books without running into it. So the craziest book I've read in the last year is The Origins of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes. And his argument is that before some point in history, the executive functions of our brain were totally opaque to us and appeared to us as voices or gods commanding us to act. And this was because... Loosely speaking, the left side of the brain tends to deal with routine situations, and the right side of the brain deals with more novel situations. And if there's a wall between them, if they're in separate chambers, as the term bicameral literally means, then when faced with something novel, the only way the right side of the brain could get through to us in waking hours was a hallucination. And Jaynes makes the argument that this is exactly how it worked, and very much the way schizophrenics and people with specific kind of brain damage experience the world today. So none of these claims, at least the way I stated them, are really nuts to me, right? At one point, we as a species didn't have consciousness. We weren't aware that we were going to die, and of the problems that that created for us on multiple levels and on multiple time frames, and then at some point we woke up into consciousness. But here's where it becomes audacious. Jaynes claims that you can see this split in ancient literature, running like a fault line between works that are before consciousness and works that are after consciousness. Before this split, there was no interior sense of self, consciousness or agency in the way we'd think of it, no lying or deception. The Epic of Gilgamesh is totally like this. And after this split, people are conflicted They become liars and aware that other people can lie. And the nice thing about this theory is that it explains, in the Iliad, why the gods are the primary motive forces. The book, a more properly epic poem, doesn't have men and women reflecting on events and deciding what to do, but gods and goddesses visiting them in key moments and making decisions for them. I'll provide some examples in a moment. This leads to all kinds of crazy lines of thought. Because without intent, is every killing in the Iliad a kind of second-degree murder? There can't be premeditation because there is no meditation. You know, if you don't look at the Trojan War as a war in the story, which it absolutely is. But here's the crazy part. 
Jaynes argues that this fault line of consciousness runs right between the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is a crazy idea, and I love it. And he seems to make a pretty good case for it, but to really evaluate it, I think you'd have to be an expert in ancient Greek neuroscience, psychology, and consciousness. And people like that are very scarce on the ground, especially because we know effectively nothing about consciousness. But as a writer, I don't care so much if it's true. I care if it's useful, if it's productive of more ideas, if I can use this theory as a lens to increase my understanding. And oh boy, does this ever work to increase my understanding? As I came back to How to Succeed in Evil, I was more conscious than ever that characters can be representations of different aspects of the psyche. This started off pretty obviously in How to Succeed in Evil. Sloppily speaking, Topper is the id, Agnes is the ego, Edwin is the superego. At least in the original book. Part of my challenge for writing more of these was to add depth and challenge to these characters. So I decided to reread the Iliad through the lens of each character being an aspect of personality, and also to see how well Jane's theory fit the story from my admittedly uninformed perspective. And when I did, something amazing happened. And it illustrates the rewards of giving time and attention to great literature. So let me show you. In my memory, the Iliad is the story of Achilles' anger. I mean, it's certainly a war story, but that's the external plot. But what makes this story really powerful is the internal story. A contemporary and simple example of this is Jaws, right? The external story is the sheriff who must defeat the shark to keep the town safe. The internal story is that the sheriff must defeat his fear of the water. And that's one of the things that makes him really heroic in our eyes. The reason it's easy to think of the Iliad as the story of Achilles' rage is that that's the way it starts. The first chapter is entitled The Rage of Achilles, and the first line, the traditional invocation of the muse, is Rage goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls. Okay, so cautionary tale about the destructive perils of rage. That's a theme that's never going to go out of style. But why is he so angry? Well, he's angry because Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, is a worthless leader. Many a brave soul did Achilles' anger send hurrying down to Hades, and many a hero did it yield a prey to dogs and vultures. For so were the counsels of Jove fulfilled from the day on which the son of Atreus, king of men, and great Achilles first fell out with one another. Even in this explanation, Jove, Zeus, Jupiter, is the force driving the whole thing. The son of Atreus, king of men, is Agamemnon. So at the beginning of the story, which starts in the middle of the war, a plague has descended upon the camp, and people are dropping like flies. Homer represents this as the god Apollo striking them down with his arrows. He cut them down in droves, and the corpse fires burned on, night and day, no end in sight. This goes on for nine days, and finally Achilles can't take it anymore. He calls together the men, and he says, basically, we're going to lose the war if this keeps up. But before we give up, we should ask a priest. And so they do. And reluctantly, because the priest is well aware of what a jackass Agamemnon is, he tells them that Apollo is unhappy because Agamemnon won't give up a girl he's taken as a slave. But if he gives the girl back to her father, the plague will stop. So what does Agamemnon do? What would you do? 
I mean, besides not trying to sack Troy or taking a girl as a slave in the first place, as a good leader in this situation, what would you do? I'd say, great, here's the girl, spare my men. This concern for the troops is what motivates Achilles to go to the priest in the first place, right? It's the most important thing. Everybody can see that. Except for Agamemnon, leader of men, who goes off on the priest, saying, Seer of misery, never a word that works to my advantage. Always misery warms your heart, your prophecies. Never a word of prophet said or brought to pass. Now again your divine God's will for the armies. Brooded about as fact, while the deadly archer multiplies our pains, because I, I refuse that glittering price for the young girl Chryseus. Indeed, I prefer her by far, the girl herself. I want her in mine own house. I rank her higher than Clytemnestra, my wedded wife. She's nothing less in build or breeding, in mind or works of hand. Now, don't get distracted by the fact that the name Clytemnestra sounds like a cross between a venereal disease and a banned food additive. Stay with Agamemnon. Notice how he's bitter, petty, and all about him. And he takes 11 lines before he gets to the most important thing. But I'm willing to give her back, even so, if that is best for all. What I really want is to keep my people safe, not see them dying. Now, the Iliad is manifestly the wrong book for not seeing people dying. And clearly, Agamemnon could have asked the priest what was up, but he didn't. And here's the telling point. But fetch me another prize and straight off too, else I alone of the Argives would go without honor. That would be disgrace. You are all witnesses. Look, my prize is snatched away. Which isn't even correct in the story, because the girl's father came to buy his daughter back from Agamemnon. This dude is just being arrogant and prideful. And there's a word for that in ancient Greek. Hubris. So anyway, because Achilles stands up to him, Agamemnon takes Achilles' slave girl. And at that moment, Achilles goes for his sword. But Athena appears to him, a hallucination of the executive function of his brain stepping in as per our theory and convinces him not to fight Agamemnon. But he's so upset about the loss of his girl that he decides to go on strike and sit out the war. And he takes the best troops in the Greek army with him. Because of bad leadership, the most competent warrior refuses to fight. In essence, he resigns. Does any of this seem at all familiar, or at least analogous? Now, you could say that Agamemnon is just having a bad day, or a bad moment, or maybe he just doesn't get along with Achilles, who we can also see as a kind of prima donna. In Book 11, Agamemnon's Day of Glory, he rides out and cuts... Trojans down like grass, until he gets a cut on his forearm and he leaves the field, which is really not quite as heroic as it could have been. Now, Agamemnon is not elected in any sense of the word, but the text seems pretty clear to me that he has all the power because he has the relationships with all the coalition members. But how good are these relationships? So when Agamemnon goes home to get a band-aid, the Trojans rally and it looks like the Greeks are going to be routed driven back into the sea. But Odysseus and Diomedes rally the men and keep it from being a complete loss. But this reads far from glorious for Agamemnon. From that point in the book, the Greeks take a pretty straight beating. And it gets so bad that at one point Agamemnon says, maybe we should take a couple of ships and row out to sea, wait until dark, and come back and collect everybody who survived, and then go home. 
which is a horrible idea, and Odysseus, the most cunning of them all, unleashes this speech. With a dark glance, the shrewd tactician Odysseus wheeled on his commander. What's this, Atreides, this talk that slips from your clenched teeth? You are the disaster. Would to God you commanded another army. What if one of the men gets wind of your brave plan? No one should ever let such nonsense pass his lips. No one with any skill in fit and proper speech, and least of all yourself, a sceptered king. Full battalions hang on your words, Agamemnon. Achaean troops will never hold the line, I tell you, not while the long ships are being hauled to sea. They'll look left and look right for where they can run, and they'll fling their lust for battle to the winds. Then, commander of armies, your plan will kill us all. At that, the king of men, Agamemnon, backed down. <laughs> yeah, he did. So the war goes on and it gets worse for the Greeks. All the Greek heroes are knocked out of commission, either dead or wounded, and it looks like the end. But Achilles is still so pissed that he won't help. So Patroclus, Achilles' best friend, goes to him and begs, not for Achilles to re-enter the fray, but for Achilles to lend him his armor so he can lead Achilles' troops, the Myrmidons, who are totally fresh because they've been resting this whole time as well, out into battle. One sharp shock will turn the tide, and everybody is really just terrified of Achilles. But Patroclus, though brave, is no great warrior. Hector rides out and kills him. Achilles goes out and weeps over his friend's dead body. Then at dawn, Achilles' mother, a goddess, brings him a new, even more magnificent suit of armor, hot off Vulcan's forge. Agamemnon finally gives him his girl back. Achilles hops on his chariot, ready to go to war. And there's this little moment where he pats his horses and praises them and reminds them of the lineage they come from and tells them to do a good job. It's human and recognizable, the kind of thing you'd see in a cowboy movie. Except that one of the horses turns around and talks back to him, saying basically, man, I'm going to do my best, but you better get right with the fact that you're going to die on this windy plain of Troy. It couldn't be any weirder if Hunter S. Thompson wrote it. And Achilles, because he's such a badass, says, Don't waste your breath. I know, well I know, I am destined to die here, far from my dear father, far from mother, but all the same I will never stop till I drive the Trojans to their bloody fill of war. And then he yells, Yeah! and whips the horse into action and goes off to kill, well, lots and lots of people. Now before we get to the climax, it's important to recognize how out of control this war gets. Diomedes, a Greek, tries to kill love. He wounds a goddess, Aphrodite. Like, I understand heartbreak and I understand anger, but I've never wanted to kill love itself. And then Diomedes turns right around and spears the god of war through the stomach, forcing him to leave the field. And as much of a badass as Diomedes is, he's still not the fiercest warrior in the story. That's Achilles, who now uncorks his entire can of whoop-ass. Ultimately, he kills Hector, the Trojans' most valiant warrior, and drags his corpse around the city behind his chariot. The war doesn't end in the Iliad. The book ends with Hector's funeral, but the feeling among the Trojans is that all is lost. That great stuff about the Trojan horse we actually get from Virgil, a Roman poet who wrote much later in the Aeneid. 
So with all of that as explanation, and forgive me if I got a little carried away there, but it's a great story. Let me finally get to my point and bring this whole thing home. A great work of art can be read many different ways, and all of them are profitable. That's what makes the canon the canon. The works are deep, almost beyond belief. To me, it appears that the modern-day humanities have abandoned this understanding in the pursuit of social justice. And it's not that the impulse towards justice is wrong, it's just that they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, there is the crass stupidity of dismissing Homer as an old dead white guy. Homer was, at best, just the guy who wrote the story down, but he seems to be a representation of a very long tradition of oral poets who came from a culture that is totally alien to ours. And if you believe Julian Jaynes, not even for much of their history, possessing what we think of as interior consciousness. But this very alien quality and the unbelievable intellectual flourishing of Greece before the Peloponnesian War is what makes this culture worth studying. Because they were human and brilliant and highly successful, but totally different from us. It's like the benefits of travel. I don't think people are fundamentally different anywhere you go. But if you only stay in one place or culture, what you think of as fundamentally human is very narrow. But the farther you range in your travels and your reading, the more of what is really, truly, fundamentally important and beautiful about being human is revealed. So here's what I take from my last psychological reading of the Iliad. Agamemnon is a venial and corrupt leader. Achilles is the height of competence, but because of the corruption of the political structure, he refuses to play the game. And what's more, he's absolutely right about the leadership being terrible. There are other competent actors, more responsible and mature actors among the Greeks, Diomedes, Odysseus, and others, who stay in the game. But ultimately, the only way to victory, a victory that can't be had without paying a terrible price, is for everybody to get over themselves, put their egos aside, and do their best. The Iliad is not at all romantic about war. Everybody suffers and loses horribly. It reads quite fatalistically to me. Wars happen because the gods toy with us. And whenever you might think of Julian Jaynes' theory of the development of consciousness, I bet that when you're in a war, that's exactly what it feels like. The gods are toying with you. The quotes I've taken here are from the Robert Fagel's translation of the Iliad, which I like very much. He's clean and fast and readable and preserves the adventure story quality in his translations of the Odyssey, the Iliad, and the Aeneid. And you can get a Kindle edition of the Iliad for, I kid you not, 60 cents. Can you even get a soda out of a soda machine for that anymore? Go buy it. You're swimming in Western culture. Might as well take a few pains to understand it. Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey is also really, really good. She's working on a translation of the Iliad, but if you have the impulse to dip into the Iliad, maybe don't wait. Because to me, right now, it feels like the gods are toying with all of us, all the time. Mm -hmm.